Welcome to the Stress-Free Living Show. My name is Kara, and I'm a registered nurse and holistic health coach, and I help ambitious women just like you who struggle with binge eating disorders and diabetes heal the stress from within in a completely holistic way that addresses more than behavior and food. My mission is to permanently help you reclaim your health, vitality, self-esteem, and confidence so that you experience the happiness, joy, and wealth that comes with true holistic healing. You've come to the right place, and I can't wait for you to experience the same joy and love for yourself that comes with that holistic transformation. If you've been loving the episodes I put out every week, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. This is so important because when the Stress-Free Living Show gets a review, it helps more people be able to see the podcast and ultimately helps them heal too. Each month, I'm doing a $25 Amazon gift card giveaway. And in order to enter the drawing for that, once you've left the review, email me to let me know that you've left the review and include the name that you used to leave it. The email that you send it to is vitalitycoaching.usa at gmail.com. Thank you so much. Thank you guys for joining us back on the podcast. I'm so excited to introduce Dr. Mark Pimentel. Did I pronounce that right? That's perfect. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So um, basically, we are interviewing our very special guest today, and this is something I've been looking forward to for a really long time. Um, his name is Dr. Pimentel, and he is a pioneer and instrumental in all this research for the gastro, uh, gastrointestinal system. And he contributes a huge part of his work to research in this area. And, you know, we can for sure acknowledge how critical the system is to our entire body and our organ systems. And just in the end, it ends up affecting our entire life and the way that we absorb nutrients. And as a registered nurse, I can really think back to my education as um, I was a student and I feel like I really didn't get a good understanding of the importance that the GI system holds in our bodies until I had my own health crisis a few years back and I had to do my own personal research after coming up empty handed for answers at these specialist office. So um, I have my own personal appreciation for this area and I would just love if you shared a little bit about yourself and um, the work that you do. Oh, uh, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, like you said, the digestive system is a very intricate organ and we can't survive without food. I mean, there are just a few basic things that life needs and food is absolutely one of them. And, and so the digestive tract affords the digestion processing of food, distribution of food, and, and how those nutrients can impact your body, but also things can go wrong. Um, what I do now, my job is the executive director of the Medically Associated Science and Technology Program here at Cedar sinai called MAST, and we do research on the role of the microbiome in digestion, and uh, that's the forte or that's the uh, thrust of our research currently. That's incredible. You're going to make a, you're already making a huge difference in like our patients. And, um, you know, I also work at the facility and I feel like I've seen a lot of, um, a lot of really knowledgeable, um, GI doctors and, you know, the appreciation of the microbiome has been, you know, infused in that care, which I haven't seen in every organization. So it's, it's trickling down into the inpatient, which I'm sure, you know, 
Um, and the nurses notice, the staff notice, you know, people are, I think, starting to really agree and, you know, accept that, you know, our microbiome is so instrumental. Um, so how did you get into this area of research and what inspired um, or what like created that interest in this area for you? Well, when I first started at Cedars-Sinai, which is way back in 1996, um, I just, I graduated from uh, a college in Canada, university in Canada, and my specialty or my interest was in biochemistry and microbiology. And I did a lot of basic science research there, but then I went into medicine and then I took a turn for clinical research. So that that's sort of why I have sort of the balance of both. I understand basic science and clinical research at the same time. But microbiology has always been something of great interest to me. I find the, the microbial world to be uh, amazing. I mean, if you think about the digestive system and all the microbes there, and now in 2021, we know that they can produce almost everything we produce, except they don't all do it. But as a collective, they do all sorts of crazy things that can influence the human body in good and bad ways. Uh, but back in 1996, our interest was in conditions like irritable bowel syndrome, where you know it was thought to be psychological. And here we were saying, well, no, it's due to bacteria. And that was even before the word microbiome emerged in 2001. And we were being sort of chastised or, you know, I still have tomato stains on my body from the tomatoes thrown at us to consider that IBS could even be a microbiome or microbial disease. But now in 2021, everybody knows it is. And, and so it just took time. And, but it was of great interest of mine is to study the micro microbial interactions with the human body. Wonderful. That's incredible. Thank you so much for sharing um, a little bit about your background and what inspired that research. Um, so I've asked some of our listeners um, if they had any questions for you. They were all very excited that you'd be on the show. And so we'll get started with some of our listener questions. Um, the first one is, what would your first piece of advice be to correct acid reflux? Uh, so acid reflux, for those of you who don't know, is when the stomach, which contains a lot of acid and you need it, acid. Uh, that acid starts rising up into the esophagus, which is the food pipe. Um, when that happens, you feel it. You feel it as discomfort. You feel it as burning. And you can feel it all the way up into the throat area. Uh, and, and that's acid reflux. Um, so acid reflux, generally, there's multiple treatments for it. But if let me start by saying the risk of not treating acid reflux is that it can burn to the point where the esophagus is bleeding or inflamed. It can burn to the point where if over 10 or 20 years you leave it unchecked, you can get precancerous changes in the esophagus. So acid reflux is benign in the sense that it's just a nuisance initially, but it can be a big consequence long-term. Uh, so most times we recommend treating it. But what I'll tell you flat out is that anybody who's had true acid reflux knows you can't live with it. Uh, it's, it's pretty uh, hefty symptoms. It, it's burning in your chest and you can't sleep and it, it's, it's not benign. Uh, so often we give therapies like acid suppressing medications and other things, but uh, and yeah, acid reflux is one of the most common problems in GI as well. Agreed. Um, what do you, what would you say your opinion is? Um, there's been arguments that I've heard for adding hydrochloric acid to treat acid reflux. And um, what's your opinion on that? 
So there, there are a lot of sort of home remedies for acid reflux uh, back in the day before we had proton pump inhibitors. If you drank warm milk or you you had oatmeal or something to soak up the acid, those are the things that would make it, make it less. But um, but what we recommend for acid reflux is no peppermint, no coffee, no acidic food at all. So people will say if they have like a vinaigrette on their salad, the acid reflux will just fire up. So taking acid would be contrary or contraindicated, not contraindicated per se, because it's up to you if you want to have more symptoms, but it would make more symptoms. Uh, and so we don't recommend it. You know, as we understand the microbiome better, you know, we also understand that taking acid like hydrochloric acid or um, uh, some of these apple cider vinegars, for example, uh, those wouldn't necessarily be beneficial to the microbiome. We're learning that they can actually harm or change your microbiome to the point where actually it can make acid reflux worse even long-term by changing the microbiome. So I wouldn't recommend that. You know, if you have mild acid reflux and you want to try home remedies, whether it be baking soda or some of these other uh, traditional remedies from decades past, it's perfectly fine, especially if it's mild. But if it's clinical reflux uh, and it's severe, it's best to use pharmacological agents. Thank you so much for that. I, I know that a lot of people have that question um, just because there's so much information. I mean, it's, isn't that the blanket statement for medicine and health in general? Like there's really, and you type in anything, it'll come up with, you know, this remedy and that remedy. So it's really important that we clear up, you know, misunderstandings or um, things that are actually not helpful. So thank you. Um, so the second question somebody asked was um, for flatulence, what do you recommend or what can you say like really does cause that in a person? And what would you recommend people do to like, let's say somebody is experiencing that every single day and it's really uncomfortable. What would you, what do you normally tell people or what do you, what's your opinion on how to solve this or reduce um, gas? Well, everything boils back down to the microbiome. You are basically bread making yeast or not yeast. There isn't, there isn't much yeast in the gut. I don't want to get that confused because there are people who are very much thinking that their gut is contaminated with yeast and that can happen, but it's rare. Uh, but you're constantly fermenting inside the gastrointestinal tract. So you are always making gas. So the somebody actually counted the number of uh, flatus episodes people have in an average day, and the average is 14. Uh, so that's well known and published. So if you're having less than 14, it's probably normal. If you're having a lot more than that, then it may not be normal and it may be as a result of changes in your microbiome. There are things you can do to reduce that, but most often when flatus increases, it means you're also getting more bloated and distended. And more of, most of those patients, that's due to the buildup of bacteria in the gut and that's called bacterial overgrowth. And we can treat that with a, a non-absorbed antibiotic rifaximin, which we did a lot of the work on. But remember, there's, there's a lot of reasons why you can have distension and bloating that isn't always just benign. I mean, if you're in your 60s and all of a sudden you're bloated and distended and maybe producing too much gas burping or the other way, sometimes it could be due to cancer causing a partial blockage and, and then things are building up, nothing's clearing. So there are many reasons why you can get bloating and gas production, but the most benign and the most common is irritable bowel syndrome. Okay. So... You know, you it looks like you study this um, quite a bit. Like, this is irritable bowel syndrome the bulk of your research? Would you say that uh, condition? 
Well, it has been for the last 25 years, but we've broadened our, our reach to many different diseases caused by the microbiome. But our, the, the bulk of our work over these last 25 years has been on irritable bowel syndrome and, and patients with gas, bloating, and distension. And, and while that seems like a um, not a dinner conversation to talk about gas, bloating, and distension, uh, the patients who have it are absolutely miserable. Um, and I mean really miserable. So it's not, it's not humorous, even though flatus seems to be, you know, uh, you know, humor, a humorous topic. It's not humorous for those who have it. Uh, they, they suffer tremendously. And they also are usually accompanied by unpredictable diarrhea where they have to run to the bathroom in the middle of a restaurant or in the middle of getting on an airplane and, or they get on an airplane and they're buckled up just before takeoff. And all of a sudden they have to go to the restroom and they can't hold it. I mean, this is, these are the very traumatic, situations that these patients encounter. So it's it's quite a, a difficult condition. Agreed. Um, what do you recommend, you know, the first steps uh, to be for somebody that is struggling with this as they're trying to navigate healing and um, reducing symptoms? Well, it's important that if you have moderate to severe irritable bowel syndrome that you, you see a doctor because there are treatments now. Um, I mentioned Rifaximin already, which is something we worked on heavily. I mean, Rifaximin can actually make the symptoms completely go away. In 1996, IBS used to be thought of as a psychological condition because doctors didn't understand what it was. And that's very common for doctors to say, well, if we don't understand it, it must be psychological and, you know, sort of like blaming the patient, which is unfortunate. I, I don't I don't subscribe to that philosophy. I think there is an organic basis for irritable bowel syndrome and, uh, and we can treat it now, so. Do you often recommend probiotics for those types of patients or how do you proceed with that type of recommendation if so? Well, so probiotics is kind of a, a tricky thing to talk about for a number of reasons because um, the word pro means good uh, or positive and the biotics is the the bacteria that are part of it. And and I don't like as a you know somebody who studied microbiology for 25 years I don't like to say that a bacteria is either good or bad a bacteria is appropriate if they are in a place they belong and they're not hurting you so if you had lactobacillus which is a common probiotic in your bloodstream causing a sepsis that's not a good thing uh, so that can happen uh, so does that mean it's a bad bacteria no it's not a bad bacteria it's just in the wrong place so it, this notion of probiotics is a very good term for selling products, but isn't a good term to describe actually what's happening. I see. But, I love that. Yeah. So, but, but getting back to, does it, do they work? There was a very large study that was looking at specifically digestive response. So in other words, if you take an antibiotic, people believe if you take antibiotics, you should take a probiotic so that you can rebalance your, your micro microbiota. And this 3000 uh, patient study called the Placide study said, well, if you took an antibiotic for urine infection or lung infection, and then you took a probiotic or a placebo, the only benefit you got from probiotic was you were more bloated if you took the probiotic. It didn't make a difference in C. diff. It didn't make a difference in antibiotic associated diarrhea. It didn't make a difference in nutritional stuff. So nothing was benefited from the probiotic. And in fact, the probiotic made people worse because they were more bloated. Remember, these are bacteria, they ferment, they produce gas. And now you're adding a billion to the situation. The, the gut 
as I like to describe it, is like Los Angeles. You have plumbers, doctors, lawyers, you have sanitation workers, and you need a little bit of everything for everything to work correctly. So why would you add a million lawyers every day to the city? One organism does not solve the problem. And this is why even probiotic companies who, you know, are starting to lose traction on single organisms are starting to go to four organisms or five organisms, or maybe if we give 40 billion instead of 1 billion, that's gonna make things better. So get the bigger one, the one in the refrigerator or the one in the, you know, and all these uh, different approaches. But the reality is the data isn't so substantial. Look, I'm not saying probiotics are bad. What I'm saying is that for a healthy individual, Taking yogurt or taking a probiotic probably isn't going to make it worse, make your symptom situation worse, unless you have IBS or a digestive problem. Uh, uh, ultimately, the ultimate pro probiotic is fecal transplant, which is a big hit these days, because that's everything. That's the city of Los Angeles being put into your gut. And probably that's a better way to go in a sense, because you're not giving only lawyers, you're giving everything all at once. Awesome. Yeah, that's, I love that analogy where you're describing the different types of occupations as the diversity. That's really, I love that it's creative. Um, I've heard in like, you know, from people that I trust per se that maybe taking a probiotic with five to seven different strains may be more beneficial. Would you say that that makes sense? Or um, what do you, what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, that's a little that's a little more balanced than taking a single organism. I I can tell you that I I have relatively low optimism for one bug solving the one thousand bug solution of the gastrointestinal tract because they're all intertwined and interlaced in there. I agree. I definitely agree with that. That makes sense based on what I've heard and learned as well and seen in the research. Um, so we did talk. Um, a lot about probiotics. So have you personally seen anything corrected by like, I, I almost know, I might know the answer to this by what you've said, but have you seen anything corrected or helped in particular individuals that have taken probiotics or anything that you've seen in individual people? So there are individual um, conditions where probiotics might be helpful. There's a condition called pouchitis where you've had your colon removed and your small bowel cre is created into a pouch in the pelvis to allow stool expulsion. Usually this is patients with ulcerative colitis. And that little pouch can get inflamed and there are some probiotic single organism cocktail or cocktails <coughs> that can really help those patients or at least have some benefit. So there are singles isolated situations but but if you talk about the number of people in the country with a pouch it's probably 50,000 40,000 very small number so there are limited indications so prevention of c difficile colitis if after you've treated it there's some data to suggest if you take a probiotic after maybe that's helpful so yes there are circumstances there are companies that are coming out with with probiotic cocktails or spores in it as a cocktail. And these are actually trying to get FDA approval. And FDA approval is, is sort of the ultimate test that yes, this does work because the FDA wouldn't approve it if it didn't. And so, like I said, I'm not negative on probiotics. I just think we have to go with where the science tells us it's working and where it tells us it's not, and not just blanket giving probiotics to everybody. I'll, I'll say one thing, which which is just sort of my my shtick. I I own dogs most of my life, 
it really frightens me and makes me uh, anxious that a lot of companies are adding probiotics to dog food. I can tell you your dog does not have the ability to tell you that they're bloated and cramping from a probiotic because they're getting so much gas from it and you're just giving it to them thinking it's making them healthy, but they can't complain. Uh, and, and I think that's sad. I mean, I think it's sad that we're taking what we think is good for humans and then putting it in dog food, thinking we can make dogs better without data also. And uh, that's my little animal pitch for you today. I didn't even know that. That's news to me. But I mean, I, it, it would make sense because they're starting to add probiotics to packaged food now I've seen, which yeah. is a little bit odd because I don't know, some people buy it and they, they just like, it's a marketing thing, I think, in like granola bars and things like that. But um, I have a COVID-19 question for you. Um, have you discovered anything in the last year about how COVID-19 has affected the gastrointer uh, gastrointestinal system for um, these patients? Well, we, we know that acute COVID-19, uh, about 30% of patients with acute COVID-19, the, the virus can both affect and infect the gastrointestinal tract. So there are ACE inhibitors in the digestive tract, particularly the small bowel. So the virus can actually get into the cells uh, of the gut and that will affect their function. Um, the when the virus disappears or when the patient overcomes their illness, usually the diarrhea or, or whatever symptoms they get from it dis disappear as well. The question that's been coming more and more in these types of podcasts is the long haulers, the patients who've recovered from COVID and have these chronic uh, symptoms. Well, I see thousands of IBS patients and many of them, uh, let me say it another way, a lot of them have had legitimate COVID, but they haven't found that their IBS got worse. Okay. Um, now there are what we call long hauler clinics that have formed uh, to try to, even here at Cedars, to try to see the patients where they are having re, you know, residual symptoms and ongoing symptoms after COVID. Uh, and so there will be data emerging shortly on what is the long haul symptomatology is it digestive? Is it pulmonary? What I can tell you for sure, it's definitely lung. So people are having a lot of difficult time breathing. We see this in the athletes, uh, NBA players, for example, having to take inhalers who've gotten COVID have recovered. And it's now months and months later, and they're still taking inhalers because they get short of breath during their uh, you know exertion during the games. So definitely lung and lung problems are part of the COVID long haul, but digestive we really haven't seen a lot of good data yet, but okay. stay tuned for that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I've noticed, um, you know, a lot of people might be coming back for um, pneumonia post-COVID. And it's it's interesting to me to see that. And I feel like I've been seeing a lot of pulmonary fibrosis coming in. Um, as yeah. well with just some damage that I feel like this virus has done to some of these individuals. And it's it's, I don't think I've seen that, like, regularly in any other condition, but, um, it's very interesting and, you know, I'm sure very challenging for these patients recovering. Get, get vaccinated. Yeah. Just get vaccinated because it is for the long haulers. It seems like this is a never ending thing for them. And some of them are 
getting, as you say, pulmonary fibrosis and progressive fibrosis, which uh, I think that data is very clear. So the last thing you want is to get COVID, think, oh yeah, I'll just get over it because I'm young. And then you start to get fibrosis and it just gets progressive uh, because if it gets progressive, it, it gets very bad and, and it doesn't reverse. And then you're for the rest of your life suffering. That would be a terrible thing for young people. What, um, given the vaccine, what reassurance can you give um, people who are struggling to make that decision based on what they've been hearing on the news and, um, you know, with all these, you know, reports of blood clots and things like that? Is there any reassurance that you would give to the population? Well, um, there's sort of two populations to talk about. There's the U.S. population and those outside the U.S. uh, Because in the U.S., we have the luxury of having two RNA-based viruses, the Moderna and the Pfizer virus, Pfizer vaccine, sorry. Um, And then, of course, the J&J vaccine, which is the controversial one because of the blood clots. The, you know, if you're worried about blood clots, then go for the Moderna or Pfizer. It's available and it's available for all young people now. I mean, 200 million people have received a dose and nothing like that has been observed or reported in any consistent way with those two vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna. It's only the J&J vaccine where there are isolated and very rare reports of blood clots. Uh, And I, I, as a doctor, believe that the side effect of having those blood clots is real and related to the vaccine. So I I wanna make that clear, but there's only been, I think, 18 cases out of you know millions of vaccine doses. So it's still extremely low and the risk of COVID outweigh the risk of the vaccine, which is why the CDC has, and the FDA are reinstating the J&J vaccine. But if you're worried about that, then go with the Moderna and Pfizer. They don't have those problems and 200 million people can't go wrong. And like, imagine this, you're, you're, you're giving, and this is what we do in medicine all the time, young people, if they're worried about a side effect, we're giving the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine, or we have, to people in their 90s. I mean, if anybody's frail and could be picked off by a side effect, it's a 90-year-old person, and yet they're, they've all gotten it already. It's done. So, um, and you're young and spry, and you should get the vaccine because it's it's very important. Otherwise, this thing never ends. Thank you for that. Um I have a question kind of like a little bit from my nursing brain. Um, when it comes to the blood brain barrier, um, that mechanism of defense that separates our normal circulating blood from our cerebrospinal fluid in the neurologic system, which basically is, from what I understand is a sterile place. The CSF is a sterile place free from microbes. How does the health of the gut play a role in the health of our brain and nervous system? Well, that's a very complicated question because you can't study the human brain very easily because you can't get there. Um, But I I think in the microbial world, we have learned that where we thought was sterile isn't always sterile. Um, For example, the amniotic fluid is not sterile. They used to think it's sterile, but it's not sterile. There are small amounts of microorganisms that are perhaps beneficial to be there. We don't understand, but uh, these microbes can get into places that we never expected. So I wouldn't be surprised as we move forward. And I've seen some papers suggesting that the brain is not perfectly sterile, but you're right. It's 
quite, quite sterile. Your bloodstream is quite, quite sterile, uh, but not perfectly sterile. So, uh, but remember what I was said at the beginning of this is that the, the microbes of the gut can produce a ton of stuff. They can produce serotonin. Serotonin is a mood alter, altering agent. It's going to bind to receptors. It's going to transmit signals through the vagus nerve. Those signals are going to go to your brain and then cause brain alterations. There's now a belief that Parkinson's, which is a you know brain disease. Now Parkinson's doctors say, no, it's a GI disease because you can find the Lewy bodies of Parkinson's in the gut years before the Lewy bodies form in the brain. And now it's believed that maybe certain toxins or chemicals from the microbiome are contributing to those Lewy body development. And then those toxins or, or whatever the chemical is can get into the brain and then progress the Parkinson's probably in a genetically predisposed individual uh, as these things usually are. But the point is that while it's sterile, the communication is there, the connections are there and the brain is constantly monitoring everything. And it's sort of like a, you know, virus on your hard drive. Uh, the, you know, the, you know, they send these, signals, bad signals to the brain, and then the brain gets messed up and, and the hard drive's not working so well anymore. And, uh, and that's why you can get these alterations. But in mood, anxiety, depression, there's a lot of research being done, especially in the UK, uh, mostly in Ireland, actually, oh, wow. uh, that really, really has some great work on how mood is altered by the microbiome. I love that. Thank you so much for explaining that. I think that I have a lot of questions regarding how the gut uh, microbiome interacts with the brain. I've heard a lot of different things and personally focusing on healing my gut in the past has helped my mood. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have any more questions besides this, but if you could share with us, um, you know, let's say a generally healthy person, you know, somebody who just wants to take care of their gut microbiome, what is your, what are your pieces of advice for um, those people who want to maintain good, um, gut health or good um, health of the microbiome? So it's important. There's a few things that are, we call it microbiome stewardship uh, is that, you know, don't take unnecessary antibiotics. Uh, if you have a cold and I don't mean COVID, but if you have a cold, you don't need an antibiotic for a cold. Uh, it doesn't work. It, it's, it's treating this rather than the cold. Um, and, and this meaning the brain. I was pointing because this is yeah. an audio, audio cast. Um, but it's, uh, so it's important not to take too many antibiotics. The other thing is that, you know, we don't know what we're doing with a broad array of supplements. So if you're a young, otherwise healthy individual, if you eat a balanced meal, that's enough. You don't have to take 10 different supplements to be healthy. You just have to have a good, uh, well-based meal or well-balanced meal. Where we start to go wrong is what we cannot control. And that is not a lot of preserved foods. A lot of foods that are in jars that can last for two years on your shelf, they contain antifungals, anti-this, anti-that, sodium benzoate, uh, and, and emulsifiers and other products, emulsifiers can affect the digestive tract. Sodium benzoate is an antifungal, may even affect bacteria in the gut. So we're putting things in our body that are considered food preservatives, but they're also pickling our, our microbiome as well. So 
there's things we're doing badly. Like for example, I have many patients who go to Europe where they don't use a lot of these preservatives and they say their symptoms are so much better when they're in Italy or when they're in Greece and, and they're just eating food from the land. It also tastes better. So it, it's, it's hard. Um, you know, so my advice is eat organic, eat balanced. If you want a multivitamin, go for it. But uh, unless you have an illness, there's no need to, t to take all sorts of other things. Just uh, exercise and eat, eat well. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, as we wrap up today, do you have any networks that, you know, people can connect with you or where can people find you when they want to connect with you or connect with your research? So uh, we, we do a tremendous amount of research here from basic science to clinical research. We're doing a lot of clinical trials. If you have IBS with diarrhea, we're doing a clinical trial currently. Um, so it, you just have to look up the MAST program, M-A-S-T at Cedar sinai and you can hear all about the re work we've been doing and, and what's available to you. So uh, we'd love to talk to you. Awesome. And I will actually put that, I'll look that up and I'll provide that in the show notes for people that are um, interested in looking into that program and um, I have a lot of listeners from even out of the country, out of the state. Are is this available to people that are not in the Los Angeles area? Well, it depends on the research. So we do sometimes surveys and other things. So it's not, uh, but certainly you could take advantage of learning what we've learned and talking to your doctor about what we've learned. And maybe there are things we've done that could help your health that you could learn from the website and say, hey, that fits with what I have. And maybe that will be a beneficial benefit to you. So happy to help in that way also. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Um, that is all we have today, guys. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Pimentel, for joining for this interview. Um, we're so thankful for um, all of your knowledge and research and how much you're helping um, further the gut microbiome and our understanding of that. And I hope you have a wonderful uh, rest of your day and week. And um, I hope to run into you sometime around campus. Yep, I'm here. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much and take care. I am so excited to announce that the Revitalize program is now accepting applications. This is my 12-week one-on-one coaching program designed to help you heal from bulimia and binge eating disorders, accompanied by diabetes, and restore your health from the inside out. This program is designed to be the missing piece that you know you need to make a complete and permanent recovery. You've gone to the doctor's office before and even a therapist. You've tried the weekly treatment program and taken the dietary advice they've given you, but yet you're still struggling with binge eating habits and you're trying so desperately to love your body. You know you deserve it, but why isn't it sticking? All this has you feeling depressed and frustrated and wondering, will I ever be able to get it together and heal? The answer is yes, you are completely capable of healing and my program is unique and the method inside will give you the missing pieces you need to make a complete recovery. Not only are you able to heal, but you're able to revitalize your life and love you and your body deeply. With the Revitalize Program method, not only will you be able to heal from binge eating and learn how to heal your blood sugar and hormone imbalances, but you'll graduate from the program in 12 weeks with the skills, knowledge, and habits to be healthy and recovered for life. How would it feel if in 12 weeks you hadn't had a binge eating episode and over six weeks by then? How would it feel to be able to enjoy the food that you love and know exactly how much to eat to feel full, satisfied, and content? 
And how would your joy and happiness increase when you're going out in a really cute outfit with your friends or your boyfriend and you just feel so attractive and you just feel calm and like at home inside your body? The difference between the things you've done to recover and heal in the past and my program is that I help you find the tailored strategy that works 100% for you. And I am the support in your corner, helping you stay on track with your goals every week, every step of the way. In addition to finding your happiness and healing, clients in the past report stable and increased energy, effortless weight loss, better digestion, more connection in relationships, and excitement to move your body with exercise again. What you'll find is that you have more mental space and physical energy and excitement to spend on the things that truly matter to you. You deserve to heal and live a vibrant and happy life. 12 weeks isn't a long time, but how are you committed to changing your life over the next 12 weeks? Don't do this alone and unsupported any longer. Apply for one-on-one coaching today and get the support from me that you know that you need. Head over to the link in the show notes to get started today. Just a friendly reminder, the information given inside this podcast should be used only for educational purposes and not used as directed medical advice to treat any medical condition. Always consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having, and if anything you hear inside this podcast speaks to you and you're curious if it would help you, bring it up with your doctor.